Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. George Daly. Dr. Daly is the Dean of Harvard Medical School and an internationally recognized leader in stem cell science and cancer biology. He's also the founding member of the executive committee of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, where his research focuses on mechanisms that underlie blood disorders and cancer. Beyond his research, Dr. Daly has been a principal figure in developing international guidelines for conducting stem cell research and for the clinical translation of stem cells, particularly through his work with the International Society for Stem Cell Research. And I just found out he was a Leverett Harvard undergrad. I was Mather, which is right next door. So it's good to reconnect with you, Dr. Daly. And I definitely know about you and your work from my time as an undergrad as well. Well, Shiv, thank you. It's great to be with you. I obviously described your background in my words, but for our audience, they would love to hear in your own words, what attracted you to medicine and in your field of stem cell research. My wife is always telling me that I go back way too far, but uh, where does one begin? You know, I started out with an interest in politics, in physics, in biology. I ended up majoring in philosophy, actually, when I started out. And, and then because I was a work-study student, actually, my job was washing dishes at the Mather House Dining Hall. And after my freshman year, I realized, wow, you know, I've got to get a more entrepreneurial job. So I ended up answering an advertisement for a dishwasher in a laboratory. <laughs> but within about six weeks, I had ingratiated myself into the lab. So I was actually doing work study in a laboratory, which was fantastic. And I ultimately changed my direction to basic biology research. And then I explored how to do that and uh, got interested in both medical and scientific training. So I ended up pursuing an MD PhD program at Harvard. My PhD was at MIT and my scientific interests, it included cancer and blood. And the fact is that a lot of blood cancers are treated by bone marrow transplantation. And that got me interested in stem cells. So it, it's a circuitous path to where I am today, but I can actually, you know, track it in a way that makes it actually sound rational. As we often do when we go back and, and recount all of our experiences with the narrative uh, fallacy, or, or in this case, it sounds great. So I actually didn't mention this to you before we started recording, but one of my favorite classes was uh, Dr. Doug Melton, who I know you know well, and Michael Sandel, uh, intersection of philosophy. And I think we were talking about you know, ethics of cloning, of stem cells, et cetera. And I think we read a, some of your work at that time as well. Yeah, I've taught in that class. It's actually remarkable. It's now called Tech Ethics. It's a new incarnation, and it's taught at this spectacular new Klarman Hall at the Harvard Business School. And I taught in it last year, and I've never, ever engaged in a course like that. I walked into this enormous amphitheater and there were something like 750 students. And we conducted a Socratic Q&A with the students. It, it, was, it was really extraordinary. Doug Melton is obviously a world renowned scientist, now very, very storied because of his interest in diabetes, which his two children have. But Michael Sandel is also a brilliant philosopher, and he's been able to marry this interest in ethics and technology. 
Yeah, I mean, he was one of my favorite professors in undergrad and, you know, perfected the art of giving 900 student lectures in a very Socratic way, as you mentioned. I know your wife uh, teaches at Harvard Business School. I was class of 2016 and so missed Clarman Hall by about two years, but I've seen it. It looks pretty fantastic. It's absolutely amazing. Well, you know, that interface of science and ethics is something that I've actually spent a lot of time on in my career as sort of an avocation. And it really does harken back to those early days. Uh, you know, when I took a tutorial as a sophomore at Harvard in philosophy with John Rawls, which was just extraordinary. I mean, he's one of the preeminent political and moral philosophers of the 20th century. And his writings and his teaching was phenomenally influential in my thinking. I developed international guidelines for stem cell research. I've been heavily involved in the discussions around heritable genome editing. And most recently, I'm co-chairing the Committee on Emerging Science, Technology, and Innovation in Washington, where we're, we're trying to come up with a really a constitutional framework for thinking about how to govern and regulate and socialize these dramatic new emerging technologies. So this year, as you know, that Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to um, Jennifer Dudna and her colleague on oh, chemistry. chemistry. Oh, it was a chemistry. Yeah. Sorry, and yes. CRISPR and Emmanuel Charpentier. Yeah, yeah, on, on the development of CRISPR, and we've covered this before at Osmosis and the the controversy in China when you know they used CRISPR in actual human embryos. To bring our audience up to speed, what are some of the considerations that keep you up at night around ethics, around both stem cells or CRISPR, or whatever you'd like to comment on? Yeah, it was actually Jennifer who. Less than two years after her famous Nobel Prize winning paper in 2014, called me up and invited me and a few other scientists to a meeting to discuss the ethical and social implications of the new technology. That was an incredibly meaningful event, and it was attended by a number of very senior scientists, including my thesis advisor, David Baltimore, and Paul Berg, other uh, Nobel Prize winners, whose history in sort of the governance of science and the self-regulation of science by scientists goes back to this famous Asilomar conference, which was held in 1975, to talk about the safety issues surrounding what was then the remarkable new revolution in recombinant DNA. And so here it was some 40 years after this famous Asilomar conference that a group of about 12 scientists gathered together at a meeting in Napa Valley, really organized by Jennifer, to talk about what the scientific community really needed to do to confront this new technology. Here it was, um, you know, just literally two or three years after the original discovery of this CRISPR technology and its applications as a gene editing system, that we were already realizing that it was likely to be used in humans by some rogue element unless we got out in front of it. And so we did. We held an international summit in Washington, D.C. at the end of 2015, where we called for restraint on the part of the entire scientific and clinical community. We called for more research. We certainly said that it would be premature and even unethical for clinical use at that time. And then we saw the 
uptick in scientists working on human embryos. And we were concerned that there would be someone who, because of the tremendous fame it would bring, the notoriety, that uh, it might even be used. And so we planned for another meeting. And indeed, it was exactly as I was flying to Hong Kong for the second international summit at the end of 2018, that when I hit the ground, I had a text from Jennifer saying there was going to be a major announcement at the meeting. And it was the ultimate announcement of the birth of these two and then later a third Chinese kids whose genomes had been edited. So on the one hand, we can say that we failed. We were not able to contain that kind of premature use, but we in fact did get the word out and it did generate a worldwide conversation. And it's a conversation that continues to this day. And I think that, you know, that first misstep, the use by the Chinese scientist, John Quihe, it was an abomination. It was flouting all of the international standards we had advocated for. But on the one hand, it does suggest that um, we need to continue to address these very, very complex and controversial issues around biotechnology. We need to do it ahead of when they will be practiced. That's extremely important, and I think will get more and more important as the advances in science occur even faster. While we're on the topic of ethics and bioethics, which you know a lot about and have done a lot for uh, both as a scientist and as an advocate for public policy, one thing that COVID has done is it's really made the relationship between the public and scientists a little strained, and definitely the, between scientists and some governments. Do you have any comments on that, like any reflections or any thoughts on how we can maybe return back to an environment where science is not as politicized? Well, this is such a huge issue and it is so painful. Instead of leadership by our president, instead of a consistent message, which is that this is a global health threat that can be met only by community action. We all have to adhere to the kind of public health measures. Everyone knows them now, mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, not because it's about us and our freedom. It's about our respect for community. You know, personal freedom only goes so far. There's a famous saying that your personal freedom to throw a punch ends at my chin. You can't exercise your own personal freedom if it puts anyone else at risk. And unfortunately, by flouting the public health guidelines, we have a government, sadly, that has sown a tremendous amount of confusion and chaos. And what that's translated into, sadly, are rising cases again, and we will inevitably see rising deaths. So I, I'm challenged Shiv, I'm really challenged as to where we went off the rails here and what we can do as a society to regain respect for expertise and sound advice in the healthcare and scientific arenas. You know, I think when you come down to it, virtually everybody respects their own doctor. If your life depends on the advice you're getting, you better respect the person who's giving it. And unfortunately, right now, we're in a situation where we're not getting the best advice and people are ultimately gonna suffer the consequences. And the sad thing is, is that 
people are paying with their lives. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, especially with that point about that much of this, I think, will boil down to individual interactions between the clinician and their patient to change the tide. So that's actually a good segue to your other hat that you wear, which is Dean of Harvard Medical School. We'd love to hear how the year has treated you all. How have you adjusted to this new normal of COVID? Obviously, Massachusetts was hit fairly hard early on in the crisis. And then now, what are you doing long-term? How do you think medical education will change long-term as a result of COVID? You know, as Dean of Harvard Medical School, I am the steward of a very large faculty of almost 12,000 distributed across 15 hospital affiliates. We've got 800 outstanding medical students. We've got about 1,200 outstanding graduate students. It's a community that is steeped in research, in education, and clinical care. At the beginning of January, I was first hearing the whispers of these unexplained infections, these novel pneumonias coming out of Wuhan. And I started making inquiries to some of our faculty. I emailed Pardee Sabeti, who is a famous molecular epidemiologist who has chased epidemics before. And indeed, she had taken notice and she was already beginning to develop molecular diagnostics. I talked to some of our virology community, indeed, David Knipe, one of our senior virologists, had just been in Wuhan talking with some of the investigators who were reporting on this new virus. But very quickly, we started to realize this was going to go global. And interestingly, Harvard Medical School has a relationship with the China Evergrande Group, which has supported a Center for Immunologic Diseases at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And the chairman of the Evergrande Group wrote to Larry Bacow at the end of January, at a time when you'll remember, well, there's still huge tensions between the Chinese and American governments. And even though there was a raging epidemic in China, there were no formal governmental interactions between the NIH or the CDC and China at that time. And so this leader of business in China reached out to Harvard asking for help. And within literally a day, I had a core of our experts connected to the Guangzhou Institute of Respiratory Health in Southern China, which is led by a very legendary professor, Zhang Nanshan, who was the original discoverer of SARS back in 2003 and was the face of the China Health Commission response to the new coronavirus. And over the next month, we developed something called the Massachusetts Consortium on Pathogen Readiness with strong partnership with our Chinese colleagues. And that has reoriented not only hundreds of researchers across Harvard Medical School, but we are now a collective of over 500 clinicians and scientists from 17 Boston area institutions, all of the other Massachusetts medical schools, Tufts, BU, UMass, MIT. We have scientists from the Gates Medical Research Institute. We have engagement and funding from the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center. It is an extraordinary pivot of research focus and interest away from all of the myriad scientific projects that were underway to focus collectively on COVID. And we have seen extraordinary success to date. So the mass CPR 
is really evidence that you can mobilize disparate communities in different institutions against a common threat. And it's not just a US threat, it's a global threat. And so we are very closely connected to colleagues in China, in, in Italy, in Europe. We've had international public briefings with speakers from South Africa, Europe, and China. It's another example of science being a force for international diplomacy. Science transcends politics. The virus has transcended geographic and national boundaries. And my hope is, is that physicians and scientists will in fact be a force for global harmony. And that will be a silver lining to come out of the pandemic. That's fascinating. That's incredible backstory of how quickly you all jumped on this. And I actually overlapped with Dr. Sabetti at the Broad Institute where I uh, was doing malaria research under Dr. Diane Wirth, who I'm sure you know. Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course, Jeff. Absolutely. So Dr. Daly, I mean, you, you've had a very storied career that's still in many ways just beginning at the intersection of research, education, administration, policy, and other fields. What advice would you give to our audience, which is current and future healthcare professionals about meeting the moment of this pandemic, the challenges and opportunities in the future? Well, in the ways that World War II was the defining experience for a whole generation, my father's generation, this pandemic is the defining experience for an entire generation of up and coming healthcare professionals. I have been so inspired by the activism of our students, by the energy and the commitment. They have seen the challenge, they've risen to it. Our medical students developed a COVID curriculum, which has now been used around the world. They've found creative ways to volunteer, to support the frontline healthcare workers by providing tutoring for their children, childcare. But they've also gotten deeply engaged in the science. I've never seen more passion, more hard work on the part of our graduate and medical students working in laboratories to try to find cures, to try to push diagnostics, to enhance vaccines. All of those ways, whatever way you can be inspired, realize that this is going to be an experience that you will never forget. It will shape who you are and who you will become as healthcare workers in the future. Some inspiring words to part on. Dr. Daly, I know you're very busy, so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the RaiseLine podcast. Shiv, I appreciate your interest. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Gwani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>